4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Yeah, baby. How you guys doing? Good to see everybody. Well, actually, you're seeing me, and I'm only seeing you in the chat room. Let me get the chat open. Today, we're going to play a round of Ask Michael Anything. I will answer any legitimate question thrown my way, or at least do my best to answer it. Let's make sure that I'm actually broadcasting here. And there we go. Okay, all systems are go. Uh, thank you very much, Dean Turner. Hello, everybody. Hey, Carosa, how are you? Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm going to do away with all the hellos because we're not doing a quarantini, which actually I want to do a quarantini. I've been in the mood to do one, but when I was out of the country, um, it was hard to hard to do a show. I had to break down all the gear and set it all back up for every show. Not like here where I just basically turn stuff on, maybe plug one thing in. Um, anyway, so uh, I'm back, but I've got to tell you, I, I got back late Friday night, uh, basically slept all day Saturday. Yesterday went out and did grocery shopping and everything, uh, and today I'm so jet-lagged I can barely finish a sentence. So it's uh, not the wisest thing on my part to pick a day like today where I can barely finish a sentence to answer questions from viewers, but I will do my best. Um, and I want to let you know that I think next week, I, I've got to check with um, Ariana and Bria and Liz, I believe. I think I might have scheduled something else for next week, but I'm probably going to bump that and have um, Craig, our head screener, join me for next week's show. So, Because I, I looked at some of the questions here and I went, you know, he could actually answer these better than I can. But then again, I am the CEO, so uh, the buck stops with me. So I will do my best to answer these. Anyway, uh, let's jump right into it. And then after I get through all the ones on this piece of paper, we'll take some... Whoa, Christopher Nielsen jumping right in. Um, okay, so uh, everybody, if you guys could wait until I get through these, and then I'll take some from the chat room, okay? Um, this first one is from Lamar Duffy, and the question is... I should have a drum roll in my sound effects. Uh, the performance comment, I assume that Lamar means on the critique form, our uh, feedback form, uh, there are tuning, rhythm, or dissonance issues. Is too broad to be very useful. If the instruments are well-tuned, it seems to eliminate that. Um, yes and no, just saying a guitar where somebody's bending a note and doesn't bend it very well or somebody doesn't play a chord very well, eh, you know. Uh, looks like there are other spots to talk about vocal pitch, that's true. Rhythm and dissonance are disparate topics. Are they thinking the instruments aren't tight enough or they don't like the ninth thrown into a chord? No, we love ninths. We love them. A more specific comment about what the reviewer is referring to would be more enlightening. Well, I will bring this up to the head screener. Um, actually, we've got an A&R meeting on Wednesday at 11 a.m. And I will bring it up to them because they should. Anytime they check off uh, well, first thing you should do is look at the box in the lower right-hand corner, I believe, of the feedback form that says the reason you were not forwarded or were forwarded is because. So 
everything else that's on the form is basically there to, it's kind of like, oh, and by the way, you should know that this is pitchy or maybe the song didn't have enough uh, or the, I, I literally shouldn't be doing a show today, I'm so jet lagged. Uh, maybe it didn't have enough of a developmental arc or something like that. So always look at that box in the lower right-hand corner because that will give you the thing that took it out of contention, why it wasn't forwarded. The other comments are there for your edification. They're there for your education as well. They're there to be helpful to you. Um, so if you are right in saying, and I would be curious to know how often that doesn't happen, but if somebody checks off a box, there are tuning, rhythm, or dissonance issues, we encourage the screener strongly to say, check out this particular place um, or check out this particular instrument. We would like them to point you to what the actual issue is. But like I said, that actual issue may not be the reason you're not getting forwarded. More often than not, um, people don't get forwarded because they just don't nail the genre. They don't nail the listing, what the listing is asking for. But then they'll see something that says like, you know, by the way, the guitar was really uh, out of tune or the vocal was pitchy, or the congas felt a little too sloppy to me. And they, oh my God, I can't believe they didn't forward my song because the congas were sloppy. Um, it, it's not that, it wasn't forwarded because it didn't answer what the listing asked for. And the other things are just, oh, by the way, here's some other things you should check out that you may want to consider fixing. So I will bring that up though um, in the A&R meeting on Wednesday and make sure that they are being uh, very diligent in making sure that the screeners um, point you to whatever that problem is. If it's under something that's like an umbrella comment, if they could be more specific, that would be awesome. Um, okay, this one, I hope I'm getting your name right. It's from Addie Barrett, A-D-D-I Barrett. Kind of a cool name, sounds like um, it would be the name of a spunky young girl in a, in a John Wayne movie, you know? Um, what was the movie where John Wayne played Rooster Cogburn uh, and the girl that was with him in the original, like, 1968 version of whatever that was? That would have been a great name for her, Addie Barrett. Anyway, I like your name, Addie. I don't know if Addie's a guy or a girl. Uh, Addie says, I'm just starting out my songwriting career after graduating from music school. Uh, do you have any advice for pitching to big companies as someone brand new to the scene? Um, what are some tips to gain respect as someone with limited experience in regards to sync deals? All right, let me take those one at a time. Um, do you have any advice for pitching to big companies as someone brand new to the scene? Um, yeah, um, being professional in your actions and, and understanding the ins and outs of the business side really do count as much as the musical side. You could be extremely talented, and I know nobody loves to hear this, but it's true. Uh, you could be very, very talented. A piece of music you could submit could be awesome and it gets forwarded by taxi and then the deal gets blown because your lack of it, and I'm not talking about you, Addie, just in general, this is a broad general you, your lack of experience um, 
present to you as somebody who's going to need a lot of hand-holding um, from the library, or maybe somebody who's just outright kind of a pain in the rear. And the library owners have lots of people that they can get music from, and I know it's hard for people to not understand that their piece of music and their life and their career, all that stuff for them is the most important thing in the world. And the library owners get that, but they don't really have the, the time or the bandwidth, uh, if you will, to hold that many hands. They just don't. So they may end up passing on somebody just because it's obvious to them that this person is going to require a lot more time to nurture them and develop them than they have to give. So my recommendation is watch a lot of taxi TV, read everything you can um, about how the industry works so that when your music gets to the point where it's good enough that your music and your business acumen specifically as it regards to the sync industry are kind of on the same level. That makes you desirable to people in the sync industry. Um, second part was what are some tips to gain respect as someone with limited experience in regards to sync deals? My answer would be the same frankly. Um, they will really appreciate it if you are able to speak to them on their level. Not like, oh, you're the CEO of this company and I'm not. I'm not talking that level. I'm talking about if they say to you, um, you know, send me cut down, send me, you know, like a, a sting out, a 10, a 30, a 60, a 90, um, and then give me alts of that um, with just like bass drums and rhythm guitar or send me stems that you know all those things. So when they say, you know, can you send me stems and you say, I'm new, I don't really know what a stem is. Um, they're not going to hate your guts for that, but it's like, you know, my other composers that I have signed that know their way around the industry know what a stem is. So even if they love the music, sometimes they'll take a pass on doing a deal um, on a piece of music or working with the composer and, and they're kind of secretly hoping, well, after this person gets a little more seasoned and knows the, their way around the block that I hope we run into each other again because I just don't have the time to um, give that person what they need right now in terms of an education, but the music is there. So I hope that uh, is encouraging and not discouraging, Addy. Um, believe me, there are a lot of people who are very, very talented on a musical level that don't understand maybe business principles in general or business etiquette in general and specifically not about kind of the the rules of the road pardon the <laughs> the, the uh, automotive uh, reference there but people it's like hey my music is great just sign me love me put me out there make me some money but there are things that you need to know it's like trying to be um, a pro golfer you can't just be a great golfer. You have to know how to work with the right caddy and develop a, a good working relationship with the caddy. You know, have to know how to deal with sponsors. You know, that's where pro golfers make a ton of their money. It's not from what they get from winning a, a tournament so much as getting a $10 million endorsement from Titleist or somebody. So you have to know how to schmooze those people. You have to know 
uh, kind of like what the range of typical endorsement deals would be. You have to understand that if you take the $10 million, you're going to be wearing a Titleist hat all year long for every minute of your life. Um, you have to go to the right awards dinners. You have to uh, watch other golfers and, and see how they interact with people from the PGA, you know, like senior staff or the executives of the PGA. So there's more that goes into it other than just being a great golfer. So I hope that helps. All right, next one is from Hoot Gibson. Hello, Hoot. How are you, buddy? Um, his question is, how are upfront payments from a music library deal determined? Um, how do they compare dollar-wise to direct film and TV deals? What elements determine the price offered? So I think what Hoot is asking here is, there are libraries. It, first of all, let me say that it used to be common when there were like half a dozen production music libraries out there 30 years ago, and independent musicians were practically non-existent, if not entirely non-existent, in the music library world. Music libraries would have the same small group of professional composers they worked with all the time. Sometimes it was actual like scoring composers that were moonlighting under another name, um, and, and they would submit demos. So let's say this is, again, like 19, let's say 1980-something, okay? Um, and there were probably five, six, maybe 10 music libraries that mattered on a global basis. They would put the word out to their regular group of composers, uh, which numbered five, 10, 20, 30, not thousands like today, um, and, and say, this is the kind of stuff we're looking for. And then those composers would work like on a TAC 4-track or something and submit demos of the pieces. And most of the time, the music that, that the libraries were looking for would be like jazz or orchestral or easy listening. It was kind of canned music, which kind of gave the library business a bad name, frankly, because everything sounded sort of homogenous. It all kind of sounded the same. And the reason for that is the composers would turn in their demos the library owners would pick the demos that they wanted to fully produce. Charts would be written up. Professional session players would be hired. They would go to a big studio like Ocean Way or Sunset Sound or somewhere. And they would spend three days doing the rhythm tracks for maybe 100 new cues or 200 new cues. Um, and then they would have string days where the string players would play strings on everything that required strings. Then the horns would come in and the horn players would play horns on everything that required horns. So you had the same players, <clears throat> often the same rhythm section, same string players, same horn players, everything right down the line, everything sounded homogenized. Um, and back then, they generally would pay, I want to say, about a thousand bucks a pop up front. The library would actually buy out the publisher's share and the um, master and uh, pay you a thousand bucks. But again, there were very few composers that had good working relationships with libraries. Independent composers, as you guys are and as we know the industry today, was not really a thing back then. So a thousand bucks, not unusual. Um, then, uh, as more and more independents developed uh, the ability to record at home using Elisa's ADATs in the early 90s and then um, Pro Tools and whatever else came along, um, 
there was more music. There were more people making great music, and therefore, uh, as you know, economics 101 would teach you, uh, big supply, um, price falls. And so some of the libraries, uh, and as musicians started realizing there was a lot of money to be made on the back end in the film and TV world, um, musicians would be like, uh, okay, so you typically pay a thousand, but I'll do it for 500, give me 500 bucks, and, uh, and you can buy the publisher's share in the master recording. And then it became 300, and then 250, and then 100, and then MTV came along. If you want to blame anybody, blame MTV. I remember we used to get trashed by our members when we would run listings for MTV because they paid nothing up front for a placement. Therefore, libraries would no longer pay for the master recording and publisher's share to the tune of anywhere between 250 and typically a thousand bucks because the deals on the back end were all gratis, but the money was being made on the PRO money on the back end. So that kind of changed the economics of the whole thing. Um, all right, so I can't say that any particular thing, uh, where was that question again? Um, oh, what elements determine the price off it? Honestly, I don't know that I can speak for the owners of the music libraries, but I know that some of the libraries that still will pay a buyout fee up front, um, they will do it because they know who the best of the best composers are, and they've had really long, solid working relationships with certain composers. I can think of some taxi members that still get paid anywhere between 500 and 1,000 bucks up front from some libraries, not many, but some. Um, and that's because they have proven that they can turn around music quickly, they can write exactly what the libraries need, and more importantly, what the library's clients need. So rather than losing that composer, um, you don't lose them because they're not signed to you, it's their music that is signed to you but they can get busy making, uh, doing projects for other libraries. So in order to keep them close at hand and working on your stuff versus somebody else's, you may say to them, look, normally we don't pay anything up front, but we really cherish your music and our relationship with you. And therefore we're gonna ask you to do a full album of 10 cuts of dramedy music and we will pay you $500 a cut up front. Other people that work for that same library might get nothing up front, probably get nothing up front. So when you get to the point where you are in demand because you're um, so good, so reliable, and most importantly, generate so much income for the library, if if they are a library that is ever willing to pay upfront payments to do buyouts like that, um, they would likely do it with you versus other people. Maybe they do it with five people. Maybe they do it with 20 people. They don't do it with 500 or 1,000. Back in the day, it was typical. 1,000 bucks, at least when I got started with music libraries, not making music for them, but actually using them in the mid-80s. Um, and then when Taxi started running listings for them, 
it was not unusual for them to typically pay a thousand dollars a pop. Um, back end means not much. No, back end can mean a lot depending on the show. Is it a broadcast network show like NBC, ABC, CBS, or Fox on primetime? Um, because their audience size is big, the PROs collect a big back end on that, and you could make as much, if not more, than you might get on the sync fee for the upfront. Believe me, we have members that have broken the $100,000 a year mark, and they know that it's extremely rare for them to get anything upfront, either from the library or as an upfront, uh, you know, a sync fee from the show or the network that's going to use the music. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I need to add to that. But no, back end can be really, really good. Sometimes, you know, it's pennies, but pennies add up. Um, did I answer Hoot's question? How they compare dollar-wise to direct film and TV deals? So I don't know that there's any correlation between, um, let's say that a supervisor is working on a TV show and they run a listing direct with Taxi and let's say that the sync fees are going to be 2500 or 3000 maybe or maybe 1500 somewhere in that range depending on the show and if it's cable versus broadcast net all those things go into the formulation um so i don't know that the libraries are really influenced by that however there are some scenarios but this is not a broad general statement hoot if a library has a good, solid working relationship and gets a lot of their music used on a particular show, let's say it's NCIS New Orleans, which I believe is off the air now, but let's say when that show was on the air, um, and let's say hypothetically, I don't know this for a fact, but it's a good guess that they would need a fair amount of like uh, New Orleans jazz, Zydeco, that, you know, stuff that's um, indigenous to um to louisiana music um so let's say that there are certain composers that they know will just knock it out of the park with incredibly good zydeco very authentic you know just couldn't be any better they might reach out when they get the first call from ncis uh, new orleans what do you got and they might reach out to their star zydeco person and say tell you what I need you to do three collections of New Orleans music. I need one like New Orleans, you know, jazzy stuff. I need another one that's Zydeco. And I need another one that's like old, maybe Delta Blues or something. Um, I'm guessing that one. Um, maybe not such an educated guess, but whatever the scenario is that they reach out to those people because they know that what they're going to get back is going to be a home run. In those cases, they may say to them, and I will give you a buyout for the um, publisher's share and the master recording of 500, 750, 1,000 bucks, because they know they're going to get a winner and they know that they need it for that show and they know they need it sooner than later and they don't want one of their competitors, another library who's also going to be pitching music. You know, it's not like just one library gets to submit music to these shows. So they don't want that all-star to go elsewhere and get tied up on doing music for that. So that's when, to some extent in that scenario, um, their, their gut feeling about how much money they're going to make by getting a lot of placements on that show every season gives them 
like emotional license, if you will, to spend some money up front. So, and yeah, I, I think I've covered it all. I hope that covered it all for you. Um, hopefully you're watching the show live today. Um, all right. This one, next one's from Jesse Skelton. I recently submitted a track for Rock Stomp Clap listing looking for an instrumental cue. The listing says, do not copy the referenced examples in any way, shape, or form. Use them only as a general guide for tempo, tone, and overall vibe. The reason given for the return was that it didn't sound like the reference. Um, okay, uh, it sounds like that's a different question than the, the next sentence or next question, so I'm going to answer that. The reason given was that it didn't sound like the reference. It doesn't need to sound exactly like the reference. They're not looking for sound-alikes or rip-offs. Um, it's really tough to address this without seeing the whole listing and without hearing the reference and without hearing your track. But you gotta remember, the screeners would much prefer to forward you if for no other reason is it's just easier to say, this is really good, I'm forwarding you makes their job easier. Um, they don't get paid any more or less for a forward or return. And by the way, I should clarify this. Some people think that taxi screeners get paid like per unit, per song, per instrumental. They don't get paid by the number of things they listen to. They get paid hourly. They get paid 30 bucks an hour and they never work more than four hours at a time because it's pretty easy to burn out after four hours of listening to music. It's hard to even listen to music for four hours um, unless you're in college and maybe under the influence of something. Um, but if you're listening professionally, like it's hard. If you're writing feedback, it gets much harder. Um, where was I? Uh, oh, the reason given for the return was it didn't sound like the reference. So 80% of the returns, and that's a shoot from the hip figure, but pretty darn accurate. 80% of the music that doesn't get forwarded by taxi doesn't get forwarded because if any person with a rational brain um, and was thinking objectively, it wasn't tied emotionally to the person who created the music or it wasn't their music, whatever, any objective, rational person would listen to this music, the reference, and that music, the submission, and go, no, it, it's not even in the same genre, let alone kind of in the ballpark with that. And, and if you sat here as a taxi screener all day long, I, I would be willing to bet, I would bet you a car that 98% of the time you would agree with the screener, maybe even 99, maybe 100%. We've seen this time and time again where people go on the forum and they go, that screener doesn't like me, that screener, you know, did something awful to me, whatever the complaint is. And, and the other members will say, put up the full text of the listing, put up your song, and put up what the screener said. And I would say 98, maybe more, 98% of the time, the other members go, yeah, the screener totally nailed it. But the members who have the complaint are like, I, and I understand it's their art, it's their creation, and it hurts when somebody doesn't approve or judges you badly or just doesn't like it, and you feel like, man, I thought that was perfect. 
But when somebody who is a disinterested third party, who and I mean disinterested, not like, oh man, this is boring, I don't care. I mean disinterested is they don't have um, any skin in the game. They didn't create the music. So they're looking at it strictly from, is this what the library needs? And believe me, the libraries want the music that they're asking for. They don't come to us just on a lark, like, oh, what the hell? Um, I might as well run a listing with Taxi because I got nothing better to do today. Or I'll torture a bunch of musicians by asking for music from Taxi so that 300 people submit and I don't sign any of it. That It's just not reality. <laughs> it's not a, even a little bit of reality. Um, so the next question, um, was it? this is from Jesse Skelton. The next question was, how can an instrumental cue be considered too repetitive? Again, if an objective person who didn't have any skin in the game listened, you would quickly hear. Um, screener suggested changing to a new idea sooner. Yeah, um, again, without hearing the music, without seeing the listing, without seeing the actual critique, it's really hard for me to pass judgment on this, but shooting from the hip because many many years ago like 25 years ago i was actually a screener at taxi and i can tell you that um people would start out a queue and 35 40 seconds later they're still on the same a section which is fine but they haven't added or subtracted any instrumentation so there's no dynamic change there's no interest it's just like the same thing over and over and over and over and over. So that's why we say, you know, add and subtract. Start out with just, you know, bass, drums, and guitar. And then after four bars, add a keyboard. Four more bars, add a conga drum. Uh, maybe not the conga. You know what I'm saying? And then you drop it back down um to just the the skin and bones and then build it back up again so it's all about where do i have that ah, nowhere close anyway no don't have it um I've, I've got like a graphic representation of what that looks like um and you look at it and go oh now it makes sense um I'll try and do that again. I haven't done that for a while where I've showed you guys actual like um, waveforms of, of stuff that are, are good, solid instrumental cues and how they're not, re they're repetitive, but they don't sound or feel repetitive. That's the secret. The reason is that editors, particularly editors working on reality TV shows, because that's where most instrumental cues are consumed, um, is by editors working on reality TV. So they're looking for stuff that um, anywhere you would cut into that track, you could find an interesting section. But if you need it, because they don't use the whole 90-second cue, that's extremely rare, like probably less than 1% of the time. Usually they're just using a few seconds here, a few seconds there. So they need to kind of match the dynamic and the amount of instrumentation you have with what's going on in the scene. So if it's a very frenetic scene that's moving kind of quickly, they would look for a, a cue that has a fairly brisk tempo and probably look for the part of the arrangement that has many layers of music in it 
um, that somehow adds to the freneticism of the scene. Whereas otherwise, in another scenario, maybe they're looking for really stripped down, just like kick drum and the bass going boom, 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 boom. Sometimes that's enough. Oftentimes that's enough. Um, Screener says, and the same question here from Jesse, uh, Screener says, instrumentals sound dated or of low quality. I use Stephen Slate Drum's new signature drum kit, Katya, recommended for rock tracks. <clears throat> I also used Eurobass by Contact, both purchased in the last year. Um, everything else is live recorded guitars through a Mesa Boogie Tremoverb into a Universal Audio Oxbox. Um, again, without hearing it, it's hard for me to say, but maybe, you know, I believe you, I believe you, it's, you know, Stephen Slate makes great sounding drums. Um, if I were to see the whole listing, maybe it asked for, um, like, contemporary indie I'm trying to think of a good example, uh, indie pop rock, okay, which is kind of trendy, you know, and it sounds new and, and younger like the kids listen to today, for lack of a better way to describe it. And maybe you're using something from Stephen Slate recommended for rock tracks, but what kind of rock? Was it classic rock? Was it 80s rock? Um, you know, I mean, Maybe it just didn't sound like today's drums. Maybe just because Stephen Slate's people that put the drums together said, try this on rock, doesn't mean it works for all types of rock. So maybe it didn't work for the rock that that listing asked for. Um, I also used Euro bass by Contact. Again, I, I don't know what that sounds like, and I don't know what the listing asked for, so it's impossible. But you got to remember, the screeners, um, <laughs> Carosa, always coming to the rescue. It's, hold on, I'm going back. He put it in all caps, and he's so right. It's not always the sound. It's the parts and the arrangement that sound dated. I'm, you know, I'm in my 60s. If I sat down and tried to play an indie pop rock thing, um, it would sound like a 60-year-old guy who grew up in the Beatles, the Eagles, um, Steely Dan, Doobie Brothers. There's no way that some of those influences wouldn't creep into what I create. That makes it sound dated. So it's the parts can also be a really big problem. Um, even things like drum turnarounds, tucka 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 tuck. If you put that in, that sounds dated back to like 1979. Um, if you do boo, 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 do, again, dated. Listen to drum turnarounds now are typically really simple, oftentimes just on the snare. Um, things change, fashions change, styles change. So it's not just about which library you bought, and it's only a year old, and it's Stephen Slate, so it's got to be good, which I'm sure it is. is um, not wrong, and I'm not wrong, because I run into this stuff. Taxi, as a company, runs into this stuff. Our screeners run into it every day. Really talented musicians that are very, very good at what they do, 
but they are stuck in a certain era that usually coincides with when you were 20-something or in your teens and fell in love with music, and that is the soundtrack of your life, unless you work really hard at paying attention to arrangements of modern music, the drum sounds this genre uses in today's version of that genre, because can't say that today's pop sounds like 1980 pop or sounds like 1970s pop or 60s pop. Uh, pop is different today. Same thing is true of rock. So it's not just because Stephen Slate says, this is great on rock stuff, doesn't mean that it's right for that particular genre. Again, without seeing the listing, I don't know. I'm sorry. I can't be more helpful with that. Um, yeah, I think I covered it all. Anyway, that's that. Um, Michael Kirby. Hey, Michael Kirby. I hope you're in the room today. Uh, Michael Kirby asks, why does it seem that the taxi screeners may set the bar too high sometimes? I'm guessing that's every time anybody doesn't get a forward from taxi, it feels like the bar is too high. Specifically, I've compared my returned cues to ones in a very good company's catalog, Universal, and they are structurally the same, but I would get returns because they stay in one place or doesn't develop enough. Again, um, I can't say that I know your material intimately, but I remember probably 18 months or two years ago, I'd listened to your, some, some of your stuff and went, this guy's on the right path. I don't know where it is now, but the screeners, nobody at Taxi enjoys not forwarding something. Uh, it, it's Everybody, and I so understand this, everybody wants to believe because it's easier to believe that somebody else isn't doing their job correctly. Um, the screeners are holding the bar too high. Or the library got my music from Taxi but didn't sign me. Um, the industry is constantly, desperately looking for music that they can make money with. That's all they care about. They're not looking to make you happy. They're not looking to make you feel good about your art. That's a side benefit. They're happy if that happens, but that's not their main purpose. Their main purpose is, can I make a buck for me? And can I make a buck for you with your music? Uh, and the screeners know that. All the screeners here like ridiculously well-credentialed, ridiculously professional, and they're not sitting there going, <laughs> I broke another heart today by setting the bar too high. Let me frustrate another taxi member or piss off a thousand taxi members this week so that they don't renew next year and I don't have a job because taxi doesn't have enough members. They would be hurting themselves by doing anything untoward toward you, to you. <laughs> Try doing that mental calculation when you're jet lagged. <laughs> oh man. Um, it's in their best interest to make our members happy. It's in their best interest and in our taxi's best interest to make the members and the libraries happy. That's the whole basis of what we do is trying to find that equilibrium of can we make the end user, the library, um, happy. And of course, they're looking to make their end user, which is music supervisors or editors. So I don't know what to tell you, but it's not like they're doing it for sport. Let's see how many hearts we can break. Um, and all of our successful members, you know, the guys that are making 50 grand, 60, 70, 80, 100, 200 grand a year, 
they will all tell you, yeah, there are times that I don't agree with the screener. But most of what I learned, I learned from taxi screeners and I learned by watching taxi TV and I learned from going to the taxi forum at forums with an S dot taxi dot com. Never chance uh, take a pass up a chance to plug the forum because it's awesome. Um, so while they may not agree with everything the screeners say, they would all tell you that they agree with the vast majority of what the screeners have told them. Nobody's perfect. Not even artificial intelligence is perfect. Um, but I would get returns because they stay in one place or doesn't develop enough. Do you think they're just making that up? And maybe your, maybe your structure is the same? It says, I compared my return cues to ones in a very good company, Universal's catalog. They are structurally the same. Well, maybe it's this many bars and that many bars structurally the same, and it's all A section until it gets to the middle eight, which is a B section. I get that, but maybe, you know, there's nuance. It, it's not like it's um, a binary thing where the, it's good or it's not. Maybe it's like, this is pretty good, but it's not as good as the best. And we can't send them pretty good because pretty good they can find all day long. The reason they come to Taxi is because they're getting great from Taxi. Um, hopefully you watched the show last week and the week before, I believe that I touched on this, where I read a couple of letters from people that use us to find music. Um, and of course now I don't have them sitting on my desktop because that means I would have been prepared for today's show, and apparently I'm not. Let me take a moment here and see if I can find it. Not that. Let me see if I can find in this set of notes from a previous thing. Not going to find it quickly enough. Um, sorry about that. Um, anyway, we get emails from library owners. I try and read them on the show as frequently as I can, where they say amazing stuff that I got. Um, as a matter of fact, Liz, can you go um, and ask Tom if he, uh, he might be on lunch break right now. He takes a very late lunch. If Tom is in there, ask him if he's got some of the recent comments from library owners about how much they love what they get. Uh, we just had one, uh, two actually, from two different library owners saying that they were um, interested in signing deals with 90% of what we sent them. 90%. That's not an accident. Um, okay. Scrolling down so I can catch up with you. 
<laughs> Sander the Siren says, Pobody's Nerfic. That's absolutely right. Sounds like the kind of jet lag I've got today. Martin Gravel, the mix begins with the arrangement. Ewert says, I had to learn the rules of writing music for sync. Totally different rules. Yep. Our friends have no clue what the industry is asking for, so their opinion of our music carries no real weight. That's true, too. Just because somebody, even another musician friend of yours who you may have tremendous respect for, goes, man, that's an awesome piece. It might be an awesome piece, but it's not awesomely right for what these folks need. There's really a big difference. Uh, okay, moving on. Sorry, I got a little sidetracked there. Um, this one's from Pierre Venio. Um, my last 10 forwards on taxi listings did not generate any signings. 10 forwards is not like a really big sample size, Pierre, um, and didn't generate any signings yet. Okay, there seems to be more and more difficult to get any deals. My first 10 forwards from 20, and this is Here's the reason. First 10 forwards from 2018 to 2020. And by the way, don't do math on things like that. You'll only frustrate yourself. Um, generated my first 10 forwards between 2018 and 2020. Generated deals in solid associations with serious libraries. Any library you work with through Taxi is a serious library. Okay, we don't work. We, we turn away more than we work with, all right? And we spend a lot of time cultivating relationships with really good libraries. Um, and they love us, quite frankly. They love you guys. They love us because they love you. Um, yeah, but a sample size of 10. It's like I had 10 forwards back then and I got some deals. Now I've had 10 more forwards and I haven't gotten deals. Honestly, and I don't mean this to sound unkind, Pierre, you know I like you and I know you're a regular, you know, in, in the chat room and everything. That's the, if a music library owner read that and associated your name with it, they would not offer you a deal. Doesn't matter how good the music is. And this is a classic example. I'm, again, please take this the right way. I'm not saying it is a criticism, but they would look at this and go, oh, so you got 10 forwards you know, two years ago, and out of that, some deals happened. They got 10 more forwards, and, you, and now you're complaining you didn't get any deals. What's going on over there? They don't want to work with people that look so narrowly at something and so critically. Um, it's too much work. They'll just move on to the next composer who's not asking questions like that. And I'm not criticizing you for the question. I'm just saying, in the context of talking to a production music library owner, it's like, hey, dude, I just, you know, the stuff I signed with you two years ago got lot, lots of placements. And then the stuff I signed with you recently, not getting any placements. What's going on over there? Um, they don't want that. <laughs> so anyway, there you go. Um, oh, and my reason... Here's my thinking, and I think I'm pretty right about this. There was this little thing called COVID, and COVID prevented productions, film and TV productions, from happening for about a year and a half, let's say. And then all of a sudden, 
the gates opened up, the floodgates opened up. Um, people were allowed to start shooting TV shows and movies again. And all the library owners I'm talking to right now are saying that they are just getting hit with a ton of requests. Business has never been better for them. And that's because the floodgates have opened because the productions are working again. So what does that mean? They are putting even more emphasis than they did before on filling orders for the shows they work with because that generates money rather than contacting musicians whose music they've heard going, this is amazing, I want to sign you, you are my top priority today. They're busy making money and they know to make money while they can. So if the getting is good, they're going to go get it right now. And they ran a request through taxi and they got the stuff and they went, oh, that's right. I remember asking for that. All right. Well, I'm too busy making money right now. I'll get to it when I can. So that is um, across the industry, across the industry, the case right now. So I suspect that's why 2018 to 2020 is better than 2020 to 2022. Um, and there's no cost for a library to send a brief and see what will come up. You're right, we don't charge the companies that run listings with us. Oh, Liz has some, great, thank you, Liz. We don't charge the companies money to run listings because we didn't want to create uh, an impediment um, for them running listings. We didn't want them to say, well, do I want to spend a hundred bucks to run this listing? Um, they, we just wanted them to run as many listings as they possibly could with Taxi. But believe me when I tell you, they do not send frivolous requests for music. They just don't. They don't have the time to do that. They don't have the will to do that or the mental mindset to do that. Um, why would they? They get no benefit from it, right? Other than what the, they're gonna get back a bunch of music that they didn't really care that they got? No, they don't have time for that. So, that that's the kind of thinking that libraries don't want to deal with musicians who think like that. And again, Pierre, I love you, dude. I, you know, I, I know you're not a troublemaker. You're a good guy and you like taxi. But I also know that libraries, um, <laughs> Pierre says sometimes you just need to reiterate the evidence. All right, there you go. I'm reiterating the evidence. All right. Um, Blame the COVID, that surely did not help. No, but it's the post-COVID that it's the industry opening up. I'm telling you, I spoke to three different library owners just in last week, and I didn't work last Friday, just Monday through Thursday of last week. Three different library owners told me they have never been this busy in the history of their company. So there you go. Um Sorry, I'm catching up on the thing here. Uh, yeah, I'm not blaming COVID. I'm blaming it on post-COVID. <laughs> All right, so here's one from James Cox. Uh, Want to know what make we know what makes a song great according to you and Barry Gibb? He thinks it was Barry. Yes, the story goes. And I'll make this short. Um, 
When I worked at Criteria Studios in the mid-70s, uh, I ran into Barry Gibb in the hallway. We, you know, All of us worked under the same roof. We'd see each other many times in a given day. And one day when I was very new and very naive, uh, worked up the courage to stop Barry Gibb from the Bee Gees in the hallway and go, Barry, what makes a hit song? And he looks at me, it was the nicest guy, so handsome, so debonair, and, and such a good person, uh, just like a lovely gentleman. And he looks at me, this dumb, you know, 19-year-old kid, fresh out of, you know, just right off the boat, as it were. And he says, uh, emotion, mate. It's like, duh, you don't know that. Emotion makes a great song. So that's what James Cox is referring to here. Um, why, so why do our feedback critiques not mention emotion one time? Shouldn't that be, shouldn't the very first thing be, did this make an emotional connection with the listener? Um, different rules for different contexts. Are you talking about pitching songs to artists on major labels? Are you talking about pitching music as an artist, trying to get a deal? Or are you talking about pitching music for film and TV? Barry Gibb and I were talking about hit records. So um, it's different writing a song that emotionally connects with 10 million people, okay? very different than writing a song that amplifies and enhances the emotion that's already in a scene in a movie. So they're not looking in the in the sync world, they're not necessarily looking for songs, oh, this moves me so much, it emotionally connects with me. Believe it or not, they're not looking for that. What they're looking for is, how many different types of scenes would this song improve the emotion on? Would it amplify the emotion, support the emotion? That's how they look at it. It's still from emotion, an emotional um, perspective, but it's a different emotional perspective than I'm going to write a song like, you know, the Barbra Streisand, Barry Gibb thing, uh, it was a woman in love. Okay, for a lot of female listeners maybe that connected oh uh, oh babs you hit me right here baby um whereas a library owner or a music supervisor or a video editor that's plugging music into a show would look at it against the scene and go does it make it funnier does it make it make more sense somehow does it explain why the actor's heart or the character's heart is broken? Does it do that? So it's a different set of rules, but yeah, emotion matters. Um, but it's not the first thing in, in the context of sync. Okay, I don't know that it's the first thing in anything. It's an important thing. When you make a pie, let's say, let's bake some chocolate chip cookies. Uh, baking is chemistry. Any baker will tell you that certain amount of baking soda versus baking powder versus the fat content which comes from the butter, the sugar which causes it to be sticky and sweet, the eggs which make it fluffy or the egg yolk, the egg whites make it fluffy, egg yolks make it more dense. So finding the right combination of those things, when you bite into a cookie, I've gotta ask you, James Cox, when you bite into a cookie, do you think of, wow, I really like the amount of egg whites in that cookie. 
Of course not. You bite into it and you go, that's a damn fine cookie right there. Um, maybe only after you've had two or three would you ever even bother to think about why that cookie is so good, right? So the same thing is true of the screeners. What they're looking for is, is this holistic sense that this works for what the company asked for or the music supervisor or the record label or whatever. This works for that. I don't think that they take it apart, you know, ingredient by ingredient going, well, let's see, the first ingredient is it's got emotion. <laughs> Pierre says cheesecake. I like the way you think. Uh, God, why does cheesecake have to be so friggin' good? And it's like the worst thing you could put in your body. Um, no, I, I haven't done baking. I'd love to cook. I, I'm a pretty good home cook, you know, but... Um, uh, anybody who's watched any food TV knows that baking is chemistry. And my wife and I just had the baking is chemistry conversation like a week ago. That's what we do in our spare time. <laughs> anyway, I, I hope I'm making my point well. Um, if the, doesn't Did this music make an emotional connection? Sorry, I've got a sneeze in the worst possible way and I've been fighting it for like 10 minutes. Oh no, I hope I don't have the COVID. <laughs> By the way, I just went to Trader Joe's a couple hours before the show to pick up a salad for lunch. I had to pretend I was eating healthy. Um, and none of the cashiers at Trader Joe's in Los Angeles were wearing masks. I was in shock because uh, they were like the first people with like really strict rules about only 10 people could be in the store at the same time and you have to have a mask. And, you know, they were, just, they were on the forefront of mask. How can you say it? Maskdom. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I'm way off base here on James's thing. Did this music make an emotional connection um, with the listener? No, it shouldn't be the first thing. That's like saying, is there enough sugar in this cookie? And the answer to that is definitely not. But um, if the answer to that is yes, well, it isn't. So then it should be a forward regardless of the structure or melody or pitch or production, right? No, not true. That just means that it's got enough sugar but the other ingredients weren't in the right proportion. So you mean to tell me if something's got, I know it's a bad example. Let's use butter because sugar, you know, you get a pass on sugar. So it doesn't have enough, uh, even butter, baking soda. Let's go with baking soda. So would somebody say, um, this cookie's got the perfect amount of baking soda. Therefore the cookie works. No, it, it's, the right amount of everything. It, and, and you know when you bite into it, you don't sit there and analyze why it's so good. You may go, wow, this is really chewy, or this is really sweet, but you don't sit there and think about, I wonder if they used you know, a, a quarter teaspoon of baking soda in this? It's, no. Um, so I hope that helps. I, I hope I answered that correctly. Do the screeners first listen simply for an emotional connection? No, they don't. They read the listing, they listen to the references, and they sit down, and what they say is to themselves internally is, does this fit what the brief asked for? Do I instantly have a feeling that it did or it didn't? And if it didn't, then let me look deeper into why it didn't, because maybe I could help this member by pointing out the thing that made it not work for the listing, which I'm telling you, 80% of the time is that it just didn't fit the genre. You know what? 
I'm going to make a public challenge right here, right now. Anybody who would like, I'm going to set up a day a couple months from now so that we know that the whole COVID thing is safe. We don't even have screeners coming in right now. I'm going to set up a day where we have um, two members one week and two members the following week come in and sit down and screen some stuff and then do a taxi TV with me afterwards so they can explain to you um, and, and you don't have to live in LA um, to do this, but you need to come to the office to get the screener training before you do it. So if you want to fly here, Pierre, from Hong Kong, you're more than welcome to come to the office. I would love to meet you in person. Um, or James Cox or anybody, but uh, I think we should do that. Um, Liz, if you could kindly make a note of that and uh, remind me when we have our next staff meeting. Um, I think that would be cool. We've done it before, but in a kind of limited way. But I, I would like to get two or three members in at a time to sit here and screen and then report back to you guys what they realized because it's just so easy to go. The screeners don't get me or the screeners are holding the bar too high or they're overanalyzing or they're doing this or doing that. Now, I can't do it during the road rally. It's way too crazy. Um, around here to even think about doing it during the road rally, but thanks for that idea. Um, Ken Mesford says, this is a great idea. I know, but you know what? Only like 10% of the members will ever see that episode. Um, so 90% of the members, more? Yeah, these are more recent. Okay. Like from the last month. All right, so thank we you. We have some newer info. Um, so yeah, I want to do that. I think that that would be really, really awesome. Um, and you'll see. But sadly, 90% of our members will never see that episode. Um, okay. So I want to read you guys. I have not seen these. Liz just brought them to me. Hopefully you heard her walk in. Um, here's one I read last week, I believe. Um, hey, Tom, and Tom's our head of A&R here. We just finished that massive four-volume trailer series. Four volumes means like four albums worth, probably 10 or 12 trailer cues on a CD that don't actually go on a CD. But they get a CD cover, and they're put together like a CD, but don't actually get printed on a little shiny disc. We just finished that massive four-volume trailer series. series. Whew, that was quite the undertaking, but I'm glad it's finally done. I got some really stellar tracks from those listings. Um, here's one from a library with a guy. It's like the pickiest guy I know. It's a great guy, runs a great library. The people signed to the library love working with him, but he's really picky. Um, and if you were sitting side by side with him when he made his decisions, you would agree with him 99% of the time. So again, this is a library owner. Thanks, Tom. By the way, some really great Gregorian chant tracks. Um, here's another one, same picky guy. Some amazing renditions in here. Who'd have thunk? Um, so congrats to this member, and of course, thank you, Taxi, from yet another library. Um, here's one from a library we just started working with relatively recently. They are definitely upper crust. 
They've been around for a while and they're upper crust. Happy New Year. Hope you've had a great festive break and 2022 is off to a good start. Many thanks for sending through these options. There's some great tracks on here. Um, Hallie is especially blowing me away. Um, would it be cool to simply reach out to her via the contact details you've provided? Uh, do keep me in the loop with updated playlists, meaning running more listings, as there's some very strong stuff in here. Thanks again. Um, here's one from yet another. This is from a boutique library, kind of small. I mean, it's, you know, probably under 10,000 tracks, maybe under 5,000. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Um, but very high quality people. They get really, really, really um, great placements. If I were a composer or, or in a band or a singer-songwriter, I would want my sync stuff with this company. And it simply says, well done, some great stuff on here, meaning the playlist we sent. Going to reach out to 90% of them. How am I doing on time? Wow. I'm going to speed things up here. Um, here's one from a, a massive library. These are great. Thanks, Tom. Um, Here's another one for Dance House Instrumentals. Now we're talking. <laughs> uh, here's one. Oh, this one's from a record label. This is a killer list of artists and music. Thank you, with five exclamation points. Um, here's one from an executive producer as well as music supervisor on a massive hit TV show. Thanks, Tom. Um, Perfect Fringe is... Perfect Mess is on the fringe of being a good montage song for the show. Don't think I'd use it, but I'll keep it in mind. Appreciate all the hard work compiling stuff. I'm not editing these. I'm reading whatever's on the page, by the way. Um... Here's one from the CEO of a music library. These are great. Thanks. I'll be passing them along to our A&R team. Here's one from, um, oh, that just says looking forward to the new big batch. Um, nice selection from uh, the CEO of a foreign music library. Just simply says, nice selection. Best regards. Um, there's another one, pretty cool stuff in here, thanks. Um, this one must be from an indie film producer, I'm guessing. Thanks very much, I'll check them out. We'll also share them with our director and get back to you. So that one wasn't that exciting, <laughs> but you get the idea. Um, everybody's looking to find something that they can make money with. And you can't blame them for that because you want to make money too, right? It's not like we all do this just for fun. We have to put food on the table. All right, moving on. How much time? I got about 23 minutes. This one's from Ron Svoboda. Um, on your 30-year anniversary show, you mentioned there have been 500 screeners over the years. That's true, give or take. Um, I don't know the actual number, but I know it's somewhere around 500. Um, what do the screeners do when they move on? I know some have written books, many of which I own, but would guess many are creating their own libraries. 
So, by the way, I think only one screener has ever written a book, and that's Robin Frederick. Steve Barden not, was never a screener. Um, Dean Crepain, never a screener. These guys are members that became successful members and then shared what they learned along the way in their books. Um, so, no, you can't say um, some have written books, many of which I own. Uh, you probably own Robin Frederick's books, um, and, but would guess that many are creating their own libraries. Not true. I can think of a couple, and that's it, out of 500. So guessing wrong um, on that. And question two, congratulations to Matt. I'm guessing he means Matt Vanderbo for all of his success. How many musicians and mentors were involved to get him up and running, especially since he wasn't a musician? Well, he was a musician. He played trumpet. He just wasn't a composer. Um, and he found out that he wasn't a rock star. And that made him uh, try to become a country hit country songwriter and figured out that that was a very, very, very tough nut to crack. And somebody at the road rally said, dude, you should be doing instrumental music. Be a composer. And he went, huh? What? And as he has stated on camera, he turned on Pro Tools and then looked at the screen, didn't even know to call up an empty session and get started, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's how he started. But I have no idea, to be honest with you. I have no idea how many musicians and mentors were involved. It's not like, you know, we could say, well, there was 17 of them and here's a list of who they were. No idea. It's people he met at the road rally, people he met at the forum, people he met in chat rooms on taxi TV, whatever it was. He certainly had no fear in reaching out to people and remaining extremely humble and willing to learn. Um, didn't go, what do you mean? Oh, man, I would never do it. No, he wasn't argumentative. He, he's like the nicest guy and most eager to learn. Um, so I'm sure that he was a pleasure to mentor because he's the kind of guy that made you feel like your mentoring time was well spent. Um, but this is funny. Who wrote this question? Ron Svoboda. Congratulations to Matt Vanderbilt for all his success. How many musicians and mentors were involved to get him up and running? It's funny. Everybody wants to do the math and figure out what the secret formula is to being successful. Yet we tell you all the time, and your fellow members tell you all the time. Write, submit, forget, repeat. Don't sit around going, well, this guy had 17 mentors, and this one made 10 submissions, and out of those 10, one got forwarded. Therefore, if I make 100 submissions, I'll get 10 forwards, and if I get 10 forwards, two of those will be signed, and if two of them get signed, then I'm going to get five more things signed by the same libraries, and then over the next 12 months, I should have 16 placements on these kinds of shows. There's no way to do that calculus. There isn't. If that's the way your brain is working, um, find another industry because those rules don't apply to this. It's going to be different for everybody. It depends on um, what kind of music you're doing. Is it something that's in heavy demand, but there's a lot of it out there already? Is it something where there's a lot of it out there, but like orchestral, where it ages kind of quickly because the sounds have gotten better and styles change? Thank you, Hans Zimmer um, and others like him. So, you know, orchestral music that was done for a library 15 years ago uh, would not be up-to-date, cutting-edge, wonderful, new, fresh 
um, orchestral for a library today. Um, even shoe styles change. Jeans styles, jeans, blue jeans. Everybody's got blue jeans, right? Every person on the planet, unless maybe you're a priest or somebody that you know wears like the garb instead of blue jeans, but everybody's got jeans. But yet there are designer jeans, there are skinny jeans, there are bootcut jeans, there are faded jeans, there are jeans with those fake wrinkly creasy things around the crotch area to make it look like they've been sat in a lot. There are jeans with holes in the knees, but they're all jeans, right? But one year skinny jeans are in, the next year maybe it's jeans with holes in the knees. I always feel sorry for those poor supermodels wearing, you know, they just don't pay them enough that they can afford clothing without holes. I mean, could you imagine buying clothing with holes already in it? <clears throat> oh, man. Um, so I'm just guessing maybe he's importing MIDI and or audio from the internet? No. <laughs> Why don't you just ask him? Why don't you just go on the taxi forum and start a new thread, questions for Matt Vanderbo, and ask him that question? Um, but I'll bet you, I don't know, 500 bucks that he's going to say no. If you're talking about like MIDI loops and audio from the internet, I mean, I'm sure he's downloaded some audio, you know, like an audio file, like a sound, a trumpet sound or something from the internet. But no, he's, to the best of my knowledge, not importing MIDI loops, which you can't use them anyway, um, or audio from the internet. But start a thread. Question for Matt Vanderbilt. Do it in the um, general section of the Taxi Forum at forums with an S dot taxi dot com. How am I doing on time? Where we go? 17 minutes. Okay. Um, this is from Dave Bar Barnett. Sorry, Dave Barnett. I grew up in the 70s, so I'm classic rock. I'm a classic rock, southern rock, country rock influenced guitar player. Yay, my kind of guy. I also play harmonica, basic banjo, basic mandolin, dobro, and electric bass. Good, good stuff in your, good arrows in your quiver there, Dave. Um, what current sounding music would be best suited for me to learn and move toward? Um, I see very few listings I'm able to create music for. Okay. Let me think how to answer this best. I can answer it several different ways, but um, my guess is, Dave, that you're stuck in that 70s style. However, um, I'm gonna, this is my default uh, example I use for this all the time. Let's say you're watching, um, uh, what was the show? Duck Dynasty, which is no longer on the air, but tons of our members um, had tons of placements on that show. So let's say with, with the instruments that you play, um, classic rock, southern rock, country rock influenced guitar player. So could you play brown, 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 one, four, five, open chords, uh, regular tuning on acoustic guitar with nice big arpeggiated strums. Of course you could, right? Absolutely you could. Um, and keep it simple. Just do it on the ones. Let it ring. One, two, two, three. You know, you get the idea. Simple. 
Okay, now, could you throw on top of that adobro? Of course you could. Could you throw on a harmonica? Of course you could. Guess what? You are now an instrumental composer, Dave Barnett, because you have just created a Duck Dynasty style cue. Um, there's your answer. Um, if, if you're trying to find listings that are looking for music that dates back to our era, you're not going to find a lot of them. You'll see some, but not a lot. But you're not thinking outside the box, Dave. So go to the instrumental section and look at those listings and say, wow, look at that. They're looking for classic rock, guitar-driven classic rock instrumental tracks. You could do that. They're looking for, you know, bluesy, gritty, bluesy, acoustic, Duck Dynasty style tracks. You could do that. Um, you know what? Watch, go on YouTube or wherever you can find episodes of Duck Dynasty and just watch an episode and write down the instruments that are in every cue and the style of every instrumental cue you hear, even if it's only a three-second cue that does that's a cue. Could you do that? So then you're going to, don't stifle yourself by thinking I can only do Duck Dynasty type of stuff. Then go to HGTV. Your wife will wonder what the hell has gotten into you. Go to HGTV. I know that was horribly sexist. Cancel me. Please cancel me. Um, you go to HGTV and watch the show called Hometown, right? And listen to the music that's in that show and ask yourself, could I do that? And I haven't even heard your music, but I know you can. So there you go, Dave. You're just not looking under the right rocks, but when you do, a whole new world is going to open up for you, I promise. All right, this one's from Katrina Seifert. Bit of a newbie here. Hello, Katrina. I know I saw you in the chat room. There you are. Um, do you have any tips for new members to help navigate through the large amount of listings? Uh, I try to read them daily as suggested at the meet and greets. I, oh, uh, she's talking about the new member Zoom. Um, but find it a, a bit overwhelming with the amount of requests and yet to submit for my first one. I understand that. it It is intimidating because... It's like going to the road rally, the physical road rally, um, which, by the way, is going to be November 3rd through the 6th. And right now, all indications are that it will be live in Los Angeles. Okay, so write that down, November 3rd through the 6th. You want to fly in on Thursday daytime so that you can get in line for registration. If you're really smart, fly in Wednesday. Take an extra day off work. Fly in Wednesday mill around the hotel, meet people. If you don't smoke cigarettes, start smoking them now or smoke weed. I'm just kidding, kids. But I went to the West End on my way back from my trip the other day, parked my car at the West End, which is right by LAX. And I could not believe the number of people standing outside because pot smoking and pot purchasing is quite legal in LA County. And man, oh man, you. And this is a fairly classy hotel. It may not be the Four Seasons, but... You know, it's not a Motel 6. It's a pretty nice hotel. And, I mean, it just reeked 
like marijuana smoke in front of the hotel. I was so offended. I didn't know what to do with myself. Um, anyway, so sorry, I got a little sidetracked there. Uh, do you have any tips for new members help? Okay, I'm yet to submit to my first one. I can make this easy for you, Katrina. How would you describe yourself in an elevator pitch? The door shuts on the elevator. You realize you're standing in there at the road rally with just one other person. That person is a music supervisor that just did a panel in the grand ballroom. And now you're hanging out with them in the elevator for the next 12 floors. And the music soup so says, what's your name? And you say, Katrina, what kind of music do you do? What's your answer going to be, Katrina? Katrina, I just changed your name for you. Um, Katrina, like Katrina Balfe from, uh, what's the show? Just started again last night, new season. She's lovely. Um, her character, Claire, is a healer. So what kind of music would you say? If that music supervisor said, what do you do? Um, whatever that answer is, and don't say, I do rock, I do a little pop, I do a little jazz, I do a little blues, I do a little R&B, that will get you instant lack of credibility with just about anybody who is a true industry professional. If you think that telling them I do a little bit of this and a little bit of that, it's like, well, I, what kind of art do you paint? Well, I do some modern art, I do some cubist art, I do some photorealistic art, I do classical Grecian art, I do um, uh, Hudson River School art, I do English from the 18th century. It's like, really? Really? You do all those? Which one do you do well? Which one do you do the most of? Because that's what you need to do, Katrina, is figure out what you do the most of and do well, and then look for the listings in that category, and that's your starting point. Okay, uh, and this looks like it's the last question. It's super duper long. You know what? Um, thanks for the opportunity to ask this two-part question. A little bit about myself. Fairly recent member of Taxi. Older. It's all right. I get you. Um, taxi's a gateway of the industry. Uh, my question, in the listings, there are requests for older material, and they specifically state the material must have been recorded in that particular era, and they're not interested in new recordings that sound old. I'm paraphrasing here, especially when the era is the 30 or 40s. I mean, it's not logical to think those composers might you know, still be alive, blah, blah, blah. I'm paraphrasing here. Um, why do they want? Basically, what he's saying is, why do they only want music that was recorded in those eras? Because that's their marketing thing for that library, is we're the one library where 100% of the music is authentically re written and recorded in that era. Uh, and truth be told is, we've had the CEO of that library on stage at the Road Rally several times, and we've actually done a thing where we played music that was expertly made to sound old versus music that was authentically old from the same time period and the audience could instantly tell them apart. You could use antique microphones, old analog tape machines, a studio that hadn't been acoustically refurbished from 1965. You could do all those things and somehow the music that you made last week under that set of circumstances is not going to sound as good 
and as appealing as something that was actually recorded in 1965. And it makes the music supervisors feel better that when they're doing a show that takes place in 1965, they can go to the um, director or the uh, executive producer and say, all the music I got for you to audition for the slots on this show, every one of those pieces of music was actually written and recorded in 1965. So totally authentic. And they're going to get a bear hug from the producer or a director. So there you go. Um, and secondly, with those works, yes, for the stuff from the 30s and 40s would likely be an inherited catalog uh, that somebody is working for a deceased relative. We, I don't know, maybe 10 members at any point in time that have inherited a, a parent's catalog or a grandparent's catalog. Um, and they've got the legal right, and so they sign up for Taxi and Pitch It. All right, got a little bit of time to take stuff from um, from the peanut gallery, as it were. <clears throat> TLCDC says, I write music for YouTube kitten and cat videos. Well, I hope they appreciate your work, TLC. <laughs> Here's one from Riney Bear. Hi, Riney. How are you? Haven't seen you in the room in a while. Uh, not that I'm judging. <laughs> Here, I got to skip this over a tad. Uh, are there any techniques to help the writer's block syndrome um, or unmotivation other than to just dive into it? You know, I'm not, I'm not a composer. I'm not a songwriter. Um, I'm a very piss-poor musician. Don't have it in the hands. Got it in the head, not in the hands. Um, but I do get writer's block when I'm working on either marketing materials for taxi or stuff for the newsletter. I hit writer's block all the time. And I'm as guilty as all of us are. Uh, when I'm up against the deadline is when I become brilliant and active. So from what I hear from our members, uh, I've heard this thousands of times over the last 30 years, which is, the deadlines and targets are the motivating factor for me. So there you go. Um, it, yeah, deadlines and targets. Somebody's telling you this is what I need and this is when I need it. If that doesn't motivate you, coffee or rock star energy. Just want you guys to know I went five and a half weeks while I was out of town without a single rock star. They do have a drink over there called like Triple X. No, that's it's a Double X. I, I don't know. It's at a blue can. It's got some X's on it. I don't think it was a porn drink, okay? But uh, I did have three of those in five and a half weeks, and they were the little itty-bitty cans. And it was quite tasty. Um, here's a question. Can I describe the differences between services such as Pond5 and Taxi? I don't have enough time. That's a whole other show. And frankly, Pond5 isn't really a, it's not really a service like Taxi. Um, here's one from Irina Shiloh. When producers request songs with cool arrangements, how do we know that the producers aren't asking for new song ideas that they will slightly modify and essentially steal? Ah, the stealing subject. Well, I can certainly understand why you'd ask the question. And, and there are 
different scenarios at different levels of the industry and different parts of the industry where I think theft by intent or by accident are probably more likely to occur. First of all, we all do certainly remember to some degree something we heard at some point. Here's an example. Um, let's say I'm going to meet with an A&R person at Columbia Records, and I play three songs from a taxi member that I think, amazing. And meanwhile, the, the next person who happens to be a singer-songwriter that just got signed to a record deal at Columbia Records um, is sitting in the waiting area 30 feet away, waiting for three o'clock when my meeting is over and his meeting starts. And he's hearing the music just by proximity. He's 30 feet away and the A&R guy didn't shut the door. And this guy hears the music. Two and a half years later, he's in a writing session and all of a sudden, a little bit of a lyric line or maybe a melody or maybe the combination thereof pops into his head completely innocently. It's not like he's going, oh yeah, I remember that thing I heard sitting in the waiting area at Columbia Records in 2018. I think I'll steal that. I don't think people often intentionally steal because they know that if they get busted for it, it's going to create a crap load of trouble for them. Um, isn't it funny that Usually when a copyright infringement suit happens, it's always like over a big hit song and the artist is somebody with a lot of money. I wonder why that is. Hmm. Let me think about that. I'll get back to you. So I'm sure that accidental theft probably happens. I, I'm sure that <clears throat> at times when I was still producing that I may have said to somebody, um, you know, why don't you try this? And I didn't realize, but what I was suggesting to them was a riff or an idea that I had li lifted because I would sit down and listen to album after album after album every night when I'd get home from work and make notes about what I liked and what I didn't like. And this instrument works well for this kind of song. And these two instruments together work really well in this kind of production. So I'm sure that some of that stuff seeped through to stuff I was working on a month later or six years later, who knows? Um, I don't think I don't think you've got to worry about that with production music libraries so much because why would they bother stealing something, especially for instrumental stuff? Why would they bother stealing when they could just find something somebody else that's got that kind of thing? Um, <laughs> Reed Geislin or Geslin says you should get Rockstar to sponsor the taxi conference. Reed, where do you think these come from? We've still got leftovers from the 2019 road rally sitting here at the office, but I like the way you think. Um, so there you go. I, I just wouldn't worry about it. Um, my rule of thumb is make sure you register the copyright for anything that you're thinking about pitching as an artist or pitching as a song um, to an artist on a label. Um, those things you want to have the copyrights registered just in case you have to defend the copyright someday. Uh, but for a 90 second instrumental cue that's just like a little cocktail, you know, one, four, five cocktail jazz solo piano, there are going to be so many other things that are going to sound remarkably similar to yours that you'd have a very, very tough time. Nobody would bother stealing it, number one, and you'd have a very tough time winning the suit, so why bother? Um, when can we expect to hear more details about the road rally? 
Um, it's going to be November 3rd through the 6th. We fully intend to have it in Los Angeles, um, a live road rally, yay, um, in case something, uh, unless something crazy happens, like there's another massive outbreak or certain countries aren't allowed to fly, whatever. Um, but it's starting to feel good. We're crossing our fingers and hoping for the best. Um, are drummers out of fashion? Uh, I do not believe that drummers are out of fashion. I believe that people who are not drummers are able to use the really good drum software that's out there and make really good sounding drum tracks. However, um, very few people can beat the quality of what a real drummer can do using something like Easy Drummer or Steven Slate or whatever. Um, No drummer is that no comma drummers are needed or is that no drummers are needed Anna? <laughs> oh, I'd rather hear a drummer than drum machine. Yeah, uh, wouldn't we all? I love recording drums. Nothing makes me happier than miking up a set of drums in a real room and getting a great drum sound. Uh, Gloria Covington question: What about copywriting trailers? Is that advisable? Honestly, I don't know the right answer to that, Gloria. I wish I did. Um, I do know the process by which trailers and the music in the trailers is picked. And it's basically the advertising industry more than it's the music industry. Um, and the advertising industry, there have been times where somebody has submitted a demo for consideration, even they were asked, you know, how it works with ad agencies and trailer companies basically is they reach out to four or five entities that produce, uh, let's say Sony Pictures is putting out a new superhero movie. They reach out to four or five trailer houses that are well-known trailer houses. And they say, here's, we need a trailer house for Michael the Invincible movie that's coming out a year and a half from now. Uh, and here's a little footage that we've shot so far. So see what you can do. So the people at the, the company that makes the trailers and the other four or five competitors, they sit down, they have a meeting in their conference room. They listen to the log line for what the movie is about. They get familiar with the characters. They make suggestions internally. I think our, our, our trailer should do this or it should be, you know, um, quick cut, action packed, lots of taiko drums, blah, 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 blah. And they come up with kind of a group think on what they would like to produce for their trailer that they're going to pitch to Sony Pictures. So that happens in four or five or six or 10 different places. Um, and the same thing is true of the music that gets used for it, depending on the style of trailer they use the music gets picked. I have heard anecdotally and don't have any hard evidence that there have been cases where trailer company A won the day. Their trailer got picked and mysteriously a piece of music that was in trailer company B's pitch demo, music that was somewhat similar, ended up replacing the music that was in trailer A. Um, again, anecdotal, I don't have any hard evidence and I don't know anybody that's actually happened to. So in that side of the industry, maybe just based on that anecdotal evidence, maybe there is some possibility. Wow, I'm 
five minutes over. My goodness. Um, all right. Uh, I hope this was helpful. I hope I did a, a reasonably decent job of answering these questions because um, I'm pretty out of it today. I cannot wait to pack up my bag right after this show, head home, have a little dinner, and crawl into bed, just veg, because I am a vegetable. Um, I will be back next week. But meanwhile, if you thought today's show was any good, had any helpful advice, or answered question, I answered questions, well, bust it out. Give us the thumbs up, would you? doesn't cost you anything. Um, it makes YouTube like us better. Wow, I'm turning yellow along with my shirt. Let me button the shirt and see if I'm still yellow. <laughs> um, and if you're not a subscriber, please subscribe so that you can get notified. And hit that little alert bell, too. Get notified when the shows go live. Um, I will be back next week. Um, hopefully, um, I'm, I don't think... I know I told the ladies I had something that I wanted to do. I can't remember if I gave them a date. Anyway, we'll be back next week with a show, possibly with Craig, our head screener. If not, something I thought of a week ago and forgot about already. Um, that's it. Uh, see you soon. And now let's play some outro music done by the one and only Keith LeBrant. Bye-bye, you guys. See you soon. Yeah.